and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Today we're talking about Bob Dylan, but not through the eyes of his children or his wives or his intimate partners, which is the stuff of most contemporary biographies, but rather the recollections of people who stood next to him and made music for over 60 years, some famous like Paul Stuckey and Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who remember an awkward waif who caught fire in the Greenwich Village coffee houses of the 1960s, and others less famous but lauded for their musical virtuosity, like Duke Robillard, the guitarist and founder of Roomful of Blues, who paints Dylan as the kind of boss many of us have had, one who can never be pleased. Altogether, the stories paint a picture of an inscrutable genius, a devoted friend, and a musician who is beloved by his audiences, but never surrendered to what they wanted to hear. We all remember the stories of the grumbling that accompanied Dylan's going electric at Newport, but did you know that the audience violently rushed the stage the following week at Forest Hills? My guest today is music historian Ray Paget, who writes the Substack newsletter flagging down the double E's about Bob Dylan in concert. He's the founder of the blog Cover Me and the author of three books, Cover Me, The Stories Behind the Greatest Cover Songs of All Time, and I'm Your Fan, The Songs of Leonard Cohn. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Spin, Vice and Mojo. Today we're talking about his latest book, Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan's Band Members. At the time of this interview, the number one best-selling book in Amazon's music history and criticism category. Ray Padgett, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ray, Happy Traum was there with... Dylan from the very beginning. Um, his group was not only the first to record Blowing in the Wind, but Don't Think Twice. He tells us that when Dylan first arrived on the scene, he was so unpolished that the audience actually left during his performances. And yet there was this buzz about him from the very beginning. Why the buzz? What, what did people see? Ultimately, it was the songs. I mean, he, it's sort of amazing. I talked to a few people about the like very earliest day in the village. And Bob Dylan comes and he's, at, for a minute, just one of many. He's saying, standing up there singing Woody Guthrie songs. He looks like he's about 15 years old. But it's sort of striking that within a matter of weeks, you know, he'll go to an open mic. And first, he's just doing covers of other people's songs. He comes back two weeks later and he's got a hard rain going to fall. And the next week, he's got blowing in the wind. And all these people, Happy Traum and others, were just stunned at the rapidness of his development. Dylan is a pretty famously inscrutable, one might say remote person. Paul Stuckey says that his social graces were not high on his skill list. And Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who, from your book, I really understand why he's called Ramblin' Jack, I, I don't 
think he said, I don't, I don't think Bob has ever been the same person from one day to the next. But I had the impression that Dylan could be a really kind guy. And I'd like you to tell us the story about how Dylan came to produce blues keyboardist Barry Goldberg's record, basically because Barry Goldberg did him a, did him a favor. That's right. You know, Barry Goldberg is one of the musicians who sort of comes in and out of Dylan's life a bunch. The first time is famous, most famously, he plays in Dylan's Newport Folk Festival set, you know, Going Electric in 1965. Then some years later, you know, they stay in touch. Bob Dylan and his wife, Sarah, jet off to Europe and ask Barry Goldberg to babysit their five kids <laughs> in New York City. Barry, Barry and his, his wife agree. Um, and, you know, there's a little a little drama where where Jacob, uh, I think, the who later, you know, became the member of the Wallflowers, but at this point is just a kid, you know, gets sick and they have to sort of nurse him back to health. Anyway, long story short, Bob Dylan comes back from Europe, is so grateful that he offers to do Barry Goldberg a favor. Barry is trying to basically get a solo record deal off the ground. And Bob Dylan talks the label, not only talks the label into signing Barry Goldberg, but says he'll produce his record. The only time Bob Dylan ever produced an entire record was for for his friend and former bandmate, Barry Goldberg. <laughs> I don't know much about music recording, but, but one point that keeps getting said over and over about Dylan is that you do not try to produce him. Somebody says, you just get out of the way. Can you talk about that? Sure. A number of musicians talked about, you know, the spontaneity, the improvisation in anytime you're playing with Dylan, that's on stage, but that's also in the studio. You know, he will just, without saying anything, go up to a microphone and start singing some new song he finished five minutes ago. And the band needs to just play along on the spot, figuring it out while the tape is recording. And half the time, that's the take that ends up on the album. Um, Dylan actually inspired awe in people. Um, for instance, the great songwriter, Jerry Geffen, who was married to Carole King, who gave Dylan a songwriting credit because he said that Dylan's voice inhabited his head. Did you get that a lot, that people were, were just in awe of Dylan when they when they played with him? Very much so. I mean, it's sort of a funny tension you you read in a lot of these interviews I did, where on the one hand, Dylan's a guy. He's a friend. He's a boss. He's a a musical collaborator, right? And there's all these sorts of nuts and bolts stories of people both working with him in a professional sense and hanging out with him, you know, going on hijinks or whatever on the road. But on the other hand, no matter how sort of friendly and buddy-buddy they may get with Dylan, they can't quite drop that reverence that he's Bob Dylan. You know, he's written some of the, the songs that I grew up with in many cases for the musicians who are younger than him. And so it's sort of this funny dichotomy that people, a lot of these musicians have both things. Tons of stories about him just being a normal guy they hung out with, while still sort of in the minds, they can't quite drop the he's Bob Dylan-ness of it all. One thing that, that I got after reading the entire book is this sense that people, I mean, and we're talking about a 60-year-plus career, people sort of drifted in and out of Dylan's life, and, and he sort of never forgot them. Sometimes years would go by, and it would just, it would just pick up. And um, Paul James, who is a Canadian musician, who not, I don't think a lot of people know, 
I, I know I didn't. Talk about how he kind of drifted in and out of Dylan's life until he ended up going on tour with him. Yeah, it's kind of this amazing story. First, what happens is that Bob Dylan is in Toronto. He's filming this critically reviled movie called Hearts of Fire in the 80s. And one night, I guess Bob Dylan has nothing to do, so he goes to the Paul James Band concert. Unclear if he even knew who Paul James was or he just saw there was some music down the street and wandered in. He ends up sitting in with Paul James, this musician he'd never met. They kind of hang out. They spend the night, you know, hanging out together. And then Bob Dylan goes on his way. They don't talk for a few years. Then suddenly Bob Dylan is back in town for a concert. He calls Paul James, asks him to come, and then invites him up on stage. This keeps happening a year later, two years later, three years later, over decades. And it's not that unusual. You know, you think of someone like Jim Keltner, this amazing session drummer who's played with everyone you know he first played with dylan in the early 70s then seven years later he's invited to join dylan's band where dylan becomes christian and five years later he you know it goes on and on every five to ten years jim keltner gets another call from bob dylan even though they probably haven't spoken at all in the interim <laughs> dylan's one-time bass player harvey brooks recalls his playing with dylan as jazz folk rock because dylan didn't want anything too emphatic, too forced. He wanted to be reacted to. Um, he goes on to describe Dylan as liking to play with great musicians who were all over the place, but somehow gelled. Fearless uh, is a word that Jim Keltner used to describe playing with Bob Dylan. Um, can you talk about the jazz element? Because it just keeps coming up again and again with musicians. You're right to notice that. And the first few times I was a little taken aback. I mean, I'm thinking Bob Dylan's music. It's not Miles Davis, right? Obviously, it's not literally jazz. But the comparison these musicians kept making was in the sense of improvisation, was in the sense of being in the moment, was in the sense of not playing it the same way twice. I mean, one of them basically said, we may have played like a Rolling Stone 100 times, but that 100th time, Bob Dylan did not want you to play it like you had any of the 99 previous times. And so they kept comparing that to jazz, even though, you know, he's not literally making jazz music. If you're just joining us, listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR, today we're talking about Bob Dylan seen through the eyes of the people who had a completely unique perspective, the musicians who played with him throughout the 60-plus years of his career. My guest is music writer Ray Paget, and we're talking about his new book, Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan Band Members. Ray, somebody who gets mentioned on occasion but not too much, is Albert Grossman. Um, as at one point, somebody refers to him as a Cheshire cat, a kind of observer who's pleased with any music, music that's good, regardless of the reaction. What can you tell us about Dylan's relationship with Albert Grossman? Yeah, I mean, Albert Grossman, you know, was Dylan's manager from, from close to the very early days. And in some to some degree, he's... I think Bob Dylan probably would have gotten successful one way or the other, but he does serve a sort of Bengali role in advocating for Bob Dylan. And one interesting thing that, you know, someone like Paul Dukey of Peter, Paul and Mary told me about was he was, he understood it seemingly immediately that Bob Dylan was both a brilliant songwriter and that Bob Dylan's voice would be a limitation in terms of sort of mass acceptance in terms of things like chart hits. So 
Albert Grossman was very conscientious about like giving Peter Paul and Mary Blown in the Wind. Of course, they had a much bigger hit with it than Bob Dylan did, and, and giving these songs to have other people record them. But you know, he was he's described by a number of people as sort of a pit bull. Like he will fight hard for, on behalf of his clients, but the fighting hard is a good way to make a lot of enemies. And eventually, you know, their relationship sort of collapsed in a flurry of lawsuits a decade or so in. History seems to remember Dylan's going electric at the Newport Jazz Festival as being a really rowdy scene, um, not violent in any way. But the bass player, Harvey Brooks, says the audience really went nuts at the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. Tell us about that. Yeah, in some ways, that's a more dramatic scene than Newport Folk, even though it's much less famous. This is the next concert, one concert after Newport Folk Festival. And in that case, you know, Bob Dylan does first an acoustic set. That goes well. Everyone's happy. Then he brings on his band, including the bass player. And the audience literally storms the stage. Harvey Brooks <laughs> described sort of a large field between them and the audience. There's a big space in the front. And almost like an army, he sees these waves of people running towards the stage. And they make it on stage. There's not enough security. And they're like pushing the piano player off his keyboard and you know security and police are trying to get them out it's really this sort of uh mob situation just because bob dylan plugged in an electric guitar an interesting thing that the book tells us is that about a week later they played in the west coast and people just sort of nodded their heads and said well that's cool <laughs> and you you're i guess the i guess it's harvey brooks who says that's the difference between east coast and west coast audiences and i had never thought about that before I hadn't either. And, it, you know, literally the exact same band, literally the exact same songs, only a week apart. But in L.A., you know, they didn't have the sort of hardcore folk culture, I think, was a big part of its point that like a New York did or even a Boston. You know, L.A. just didn't have that same sort of folk scene in the early 60s and that same commitment to keeping folk artists folk and keeping protest songs, you know, political. And so they just sort of seemed to accept whatever Dylan wanted to do. Talk about the big pink sessions that that actually became the basement tapes. Happy Trump says they were they were actually meant to be demo tapes so other artists would record them. Yeah, and they actually were used as such. I mean, a number of the songs that were recorded just with Bob and the band jamming were actually, in fact, sent out to people like, again, 10 years later, Peter Paul Mary record one of them too much of nothing. Um, and again, this is sort of an Albert Grossman move. Bob Dylan's writing these songs right now. Bob Dylan, you know, this is not long after the motorcycle accident. He's not a public person. He's not touring. He's not. They don't even know if he's going to make another record. So let's keep the income coming. He writes the songs. You, you know, put them on a tape and we'll give them to famous musicians to record. That happened with Richard Thompson, who I interviewed too. Fairport Convention recorded a number of those basement tape songs years before anyone heard the Dylan version. Dylan liked to record. Dylan liked to be backed up by by bands, not only famously the band, but he toured with Tom Petty and his entire Heartbreakers band. Is that right? I mean, he he picked up musicians a lot, but he also really enjoyed having a solid group behind him. I think it's striking that when Bob Dylan went electric, he never went back. He has never done a solo acoustic tour since 1965 which really says something, right? I mean, people, you envision Bob Dylan with the harmonica rap and the acoustic guitar singing Blown in the Wind, but the, he only did that for like three years and that he never did it again. And it is because 
He enjoys this interplay. He enjoys making music on stage with other people. Sometimes an existing band like the Heartbreakers or the Grateful Dead, he did as well, often just sort of people he picks up along the way and pushes together. So something that I never knew was that at one point, Dylan had an alias called Blind Boy Grunt. What was that all about? Yeah, that was uh, very, very early on. You know, he signed to this record deal by John Hammond, but that, you know, puts limitations on albums that, quote unquote, Bob Dylan can appear on. So for this, for he's doing, he wants to do a benefit for Broadside, which is like a folk magazine. This is in the very early days. But, you know, Bob Dylan, in quotes, cannot appear on someone else's album. So, yeah, he records some new songs. He gives Happy Traum one of them and plays with him, but he can't put it out as Bob Dylan. It has to be Blind Boy Grunt. So, of course, when you listen to Blind Boy Grunt, it's pretty immediately obvious that it is Bob Dylan. There seems to be this theme running through the book of great musicians meeting and getting to work with Dylan on the strength of a phone call or being added when somebody else was unavailable or Bob didn't like someone else's playing. Um, and Bob would say, you know, you should learn to play the bass, he said to somebody. For all, for all his genius, I was struck by the fact that he could be pretty informal. Did you have that impression? Extremely informal. Um, you know, a number of people would talk about how if they got a call to do a Dylan session, it was always like tomorrow. And if they said, no, can we do it another day or I'm busy or something, it would just poof, it's gone. He's getting someone else. Um, and that's the same way he runs, you know, something like rehearsals or even the onstage shows. He won't tell people what to play. And then half the time you rehearse one song and then you go on stage the next day and in front of, you know, 10,000 people, he'll yell out for you to play a song that you've never rehearsed. <laughs> and it almost seems deliberate, like he wants that element of spontaneity, of sort of liveness in the live experience. Yeah, you, you, there, there are musicians in the book who know the Din Dylan canon song by song over all the years of their lives, because some of them were quite quite a bit younger than Dylan. And then there are others who, who really just maybe knew 20 songs and sort of crammed it in. I'm not sure who it was, Marshall Cranshaw, who, who had never played with Dylan before and, and called up somebody and said, quick, I'm going to be in Dylan's band. Send me all his records. And they sent him a box full of records that he had to like study overnight for weeks. Yeah, I mean, I, there, that sort of thing happened a few times in the interviews, and it did always kind of make me laugh because, yeah, there's plenty of people who revere the entire catalog and know it inside and out. But it's always funny. There was another guy who was, you know, a young guy from an L.A. punk band who was like, man, we were like punks. All we listened to was The Clash. I wasn't sitting around listening to Bob Dylan records from the 60s. And nevertheless, he's asked to play with Bob Dylan and he sort of has to has to figure out these songs under in fairly short order. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about Bob Dylan as seen through the eyes of the people who played with him throughout the 60-plus years of his career. My guest is music writer Ray Paget, and we're talking about his book, Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan's Band Members. Ray, Dylan pissed off a lot of fans when he went from folk to rock, but as you tell us, he did it again when he went from rock to gospel. Most musicians kind of stay in their groove. I mean, it's a lot safer and more lucrative that way. What was it about Dylan that always put the music first, no matter what he figured the audience would think? It really does seem like a through line 
throughout his career that whenever people try to put him in a box of any sort, he's liable to go in the exact opposite direction. So yeah, the going electric is a fairly famous one early on, but it's striking reading these interviews that there's a number of much later occasions where band members talk about, you know, ostensibly Dylan fans booing them on stage because they were not, you know, playing like a Rolling Stone in Masters of War, as you might expect from sort of a, you know, 60s act. They were just, Dylan would just go in whatever direction he wanted to and honestly doesn't seem to care that much whether people follow him or not. Did, I'm interested in in the process of your doing this book. Did you? I know you had a tremendous amount of knowledge about Dylan because you have a, a podcast about um, on and on, on. You're getting a podcast and you have a Substack um, thing all about music and Dylan. But I'm wondering, did the did you learn as you continued? to interview people, and did your knowledge increase the quality of your interview questions as you went on person by person? Uh, Strong yes to both. On the first front, I learned an enormous amount. I mean, I've read what seems like every Bob Dylan book out there, but, you know, a number of these musicians had never talked before, so they had all these stories that they just hadn't shared. And so I was constantly surprised and amazed. And then also on the other part of the question, yes, knowing so much was hugely helpful because when I would start the interviews, a lot of times these people, maybe they have their one Dylan anecdote that they trot out at parties or whatever, and they would sort of launch into that, right? And, it, you know, it takes a couple of minutes, but you can listen, you know, as if you, when I would listen back to the tapes, it struck me that as I sort of kept probing, asking follow-up questions, asking for more detail, you know, they sort of opened up more. They sort of realized, oh, this isn't the typical people want the one Dylan story and I have a funny story. We're really going deep here. And, you know, knowing all those, all that information, being able to prod them, being able to remind them, what about this show? Oh, you played for the Pope this year. What was that like? You did this and such. You played for Sinatra. Tell me about that. You know, you could hear them kind of go, oh, I don't really remember. Oh, yeah. And then they would come up with some amazing story they hadn't thought about in 20 years. One amazing story was Lewis Kemp, who was Bob Dylan's friend from their days at Jewish summer camp. I mean, amazing. He wasn't a musician. In fact, he was in the he was a successful fishmonger, but Bob made him a producer of the Rolling Thunder Review. Talk about that period where he reunited with Lewis Kemp. Yeah, I mean, speaking of people who come in and out of Bob's life, this is literally a childhood friend from when he's like 13 going to summer camp. Um, You know, they lose touch. At some point, Lewis Kemp goes on and like becomes like a really big, you know, work in the food industry. Lewis Kemp Fish Company is pretty well known. Um, At some point, he's back home. He runs into Bob Dylan's mother, who, of course, (laughs) he knows from being a kid. They get to chatting. He says, oh, next time in New York, you know, Bob, Bobby is in New York. You should look him up. So he gives him his number. Louis says, all right, he calls Bob. They reconnect. You know, this is 10 years later and more, like 15 years later. And yeah, Bob Dylan invites him on the road and pretty soon hires him to produce his tour. And there's this funny interaction he shares where he says, look, I'm not a music industry guy. Bob, like, I don't I don't produce tours. I don't know what I'm doing. And Bob sort of says, that's why I want you. Like, I want someone who's going to be in my quarter, in my corner. And then Bob says, if you can sell fish, you can sell tickets. <laughs> and and Louis Kemp went head to head 
with the president of what was it, Columbia Records, and he actually got, right. got Bob a good deal because he knew how to sling, he knew how to deal fish. He was, was yeah, a great he, story. he's a master negotiator, just in a totally different industry. And secondarily, to Bob's point about wanting someone in his corner, Louis said, anyone else, like they would have needed to stay in the good graces of the president of Columbia Records. This is a huge person in the music industry. I was going back to the fish business. Like, I don't care if he was pissed off at me. So he was able to negotiate much harder than someone else might have been. Did you get the impression throughout the book, although nobody actually addresses this, that, that Bob was a good businessman? I'd say from, from, what I, from what I've told you, know, I didn't talk to too many people sort of on the business side, but the few I did, he hires the right people. He's someone who delegates well. I mean, I, there's not many stories of like, Bob Dylan putting on the, you know, the green visor and, and <laughs> counting up, you know, net profit and net losses. I don't think he gets down to it on that level of detail. Um, but, you know, he does sort of he has a good record of hiring people who he trusts, who who do, you know, make make good decisions, given the limitations of him being he's not going to do a great hit tour. He's not going to, you know, try to sell out Madison Square Garden by playing, you know, strumming acoustic guitar and singing Blowing in the Wind. Like he puts obvious limitations on how successful his business can be just by being, you know, sort of an oddball. But uh, but within that constraints, I think it, it does pretty well. One of the stories that, I don't know why, it, it really hit home to me, probably because I've had a lot of experience experiences with bosses that I didn't get along with over the years. And this is the last question. Um, it was the story of Duke Robillard, who people who people know as the founder of Room Full of Blues. The way he tells it, Dylan took a, a sudden dislike to his playing, and it, it really shook him up. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, that's, there's two sides to the coin of Dylan being mercurial and you know, improvisational. And Duke saw that firsthand. You know, he, he's hired to be Dylan's guitarist. They go on one tour. It seems to go well. Dylan seems to like what he's playing. He gets hired for another tour. So clearly he, you know, it went fine. But he says from day one, Bob Dylan is, is blaring at him on stage. Just seems furious with what he's doing. But again, Dylan doesn't tell people what to play. He doesn't really tell him what not to play. So Duke's trying asking him, trying to get advice. All right, what, what am I doing wrong? What do you want me to do? And Bob Dylan won't really tell him. And it leads to this huge blow up on the bus that eventually, you know, Duke is in the middle of the tour. Suddenly he's out of the band. He says he quit. You know, he sort of was he did he jump or was he pushed situation? But it that is the you know, I was glad that story got in there just because for all the people talking about how wonderful it was to work with someone so unpredictable, you know, that can have two sides to it. Yeah, if you've ever had a boss that said, I want, I want you to guess what I'm thinking, that was a story that proved that. You ever think you'll meet Bob Dylan? Probably not. I don't think anyone outside of his inner circle has met him in like 20 years. It's funny, he's a weird combination where he's both extremely reclusive. You know, he doesn't really do interviews anymore, but he also tours constantly. So every night he's in front of thousands of people while also being a mystery. <laughs> I want to thank you very much. The book was totally enjoyable, and it taught me more than I ever even thought I wanted to know. Good luck with it. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye now. My guest today has been music historian Ray Paget. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan's Band Members, was recently published by EWP Press. 
This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on Another Side of Bob Dylan, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Thank mm-hmm. you.